electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we usually bring you in-depth, candid conversations with CEOs, entrepreneurs, thought leaders from interviews recorded in front of audiences at CNBC's live events. However, as we navigate this pandemic and practice social distancing, we conduct the interviews remotely, and we bring you those conversations here on this podcast. Today, you'll hear a conversation from CNBC's third annual Healthy Returns Conference. It was held virtually for the first time on May 12, 2020. Over 1,300 people attended our conference virtually, and we heard from CEOs of companies such as Pfizer, Regeneron, Moderna, several others, about how some of the most innovative companies are addressing the coronavirus crisis and the lasting effects that this pandemic will have on the industry. My colleague Meg Terrell, who is CNBC's senior health and science reporter, led a lot of the great conversations and was really formative in all of the content along the way. And she joins me now for this conversation. How are you, Meg? I'm doing well, Tyler. How are you? I'm fantastic. You know, we had this conference planned months in event uh, in advance, really from the last one a year ago, but we really had to change when the word coronavirus entered the lexicon. Yeah, you know, we had planned to do all kinds of amazing panels on other technologies like gene therapies and on big political debates like drug pricing. But in this environment, everybody you're talking to in the healthcare industry right now is really focused on one thing. I mean, everybody in the world is focused on one thing. And so that's what we ended up mainly focusing on, of course, at Healthy Returns. We kicked off the event with a conversation with a person who has become very familiar, not only to CNBC viewers, but to uh, millions of Americans, and that's Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Why don't you tell us a little bit about his background, who he is, uh, and why he is such a, uh, an influential person to hear from? Right. Well, I think you put it best at the end of our Healthy Returns segment with him, where you sort of compared him with Dr. Fauci. Uh, you know, he's one of the most visible people talking about what's happening with the coronavirus right now. Um, and of course, before he joined us as a CNBC contributor, he was the commissioner of the FDA from 2017 to 2019. Uh, before that, you know, he was really well known in the drug industry um, as a venture capitalist um, and also as a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which now he's rejoined. Joined. Uh, he worked with a lot of biotech and pharmaceutical companies um, to really understand the ins and outs of the business. And so he's a very familiar voice to people who are working on these kinds of technologies, both as somebody who's been on the development and the, the drug industry side and somebody who's really looked at it from the regulator perspective. So he's got that unique uh, sense of experience that he always brings to our, our conversations. I've compared him to our friend and colleague, Scott Wapner, as the smarter brother we all wish we had. <laughs> because he, because he, he certainly is smarter uh, and he has a, a wonderful gift for putting things in simple terms. And, and we began the conversation uh, by using the, uh, the baseball metaphor. And I asked him, if it were a baseball game, what inning would we be in? And are we looking at a double header? Here's what he said. 
I think it's probably the second inning. Um, you know, we've now seen the virus whip around the world, and we've con- we've now grappling with our own epidemic here in the United States, and are starting to plateau and hopefully come down the epidemic curve. Although we're seeing cases rise in a lot of parts of the nation when you get outside the Pacific Northwest and parts of California and and the tri-state region around New York City. But I think that we're going to be facing a very different threat heading into the fall and into the winter and then probably into the spring again um, as this settles into a more seasonal pattern until we can get to a vaccine or until this just has a slow burn through the country and we get to a point where we have what what is effectively herd immunity. I mean, the doubling time right now is about every month. So the epidemic itself is doubling every 45 days. If you look at a report put out by Morgan Stanley today, some other modeling shows it's doubling every month. Um, so at some point you get to a level of exposure if we continue on this slow burn where a lot of people have had it and transmission will start to uh, start to slow down. But this is still the early innings to this uh, this epidemic. Let me let me pick up on something you just said, and it is an important one. And Meg, I'll come to you in just a moment on this very same topic. And it goes to the question of mitigation. You said that if you strip out uh, the tri-state area, the Pacific Northwest and California, and you look at it at American case counts, they are still rising. That would call into question, wouldn't it, the effectiveness of all this mitigating that we've been trying to do. So the question is, has mitigation helped us? Has it worked, partially worked? If we didn't do all this mitigation, would we have succeeded to the same degree we have in flattening the curve? In other words, would the case count be even steeper? So would you address that whole topic of of mitigation and whether if we hadn't mitigated our fannies off, we'd be in a worse place than we are today? Right. Well, it's a little unfair for me to talk about the country without talking about New York, although we are looking at data outside New York as we start to assess the reopening, because had New York not happened, had you not had the scope of the epidemic that you did in New York, the administration that might not have made the decision to shut down the country and do population-wide mitigation across the entire United States. Um, but remember, the primary objective of mitigation was to slow the spread and, and keep the peak number of cases below the point at which the healthcare system would become overwhelmed. And we were primarily concerned about New York, but also other cities like New Orleans and Detroit and Chicago, um, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, that also had large outbreaks. So mitigation did succeed at its primary purpose, which was to keep the healthcare system from becoming exhausted and keep the number of deaths down, because we know from experience around the world and other epidemics that the death count starts to rise rapidly when the healthcare system becomes overwhelmed. That's certainly what happened in Italy, and it's what started to happen in Wuhan as well. I think what most of us figured, though, and I certainly believed, was that mitigation was also going to have a pretty profound impact on the spread in terms of leading to sustained reductions in new cases, as you had seen in other countries, and certainly as you'd seen in Europe. And China was the, the starkest example of this, where their mitigation um, caused the epidemic curve to be largely symmetric, where they went up their epidemic curve very fast, but came down it quickly as well. And you've seen Europe come down their epidemic curve. What you've seen, seen in the United States, though, with the exception of the tri-state region, is more of a flattening. We've reached a plateau, but we're not starting to see those steady declines yet. And that that was a surprise. That wasn't the primary objective of mitigation, but we all believe that what that was going to be an outcome of it. Now, mm-hmm. if you want to be optimistic, in the last week, we have seen cases come down a little bit. We've had about an average of around 27,000 cases a day and 1,700 deaths. That's down from about 30,000 and 2,000 deaths. So maybe we're starting to show some slow declines, but it's probably too early to right. tell. Still to come on the keynote. Will we reach herd immunity in the United States before we even have a vaccine? Stay with us. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Tyler Matheson, joined by CNBC's senior health and science reporter, Meg Terrell. You're listening to our conversation with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, from CNBC's Healthy Returns Conference held online on May 12th, 2020. You know, Meg, a lot of people say that you can't really expect to reopen the economy until you have A, a vaccine that really works, or B, uh, treatment protocols that really can either cure or or blunt uh, the, the, the health effects of this illness. So give us your latest read on where we are with respect to vaccines, the forecast for when one might be widely commercially available, and where we stand in terms of therapies for this disease. Well, in terms of the vaccine, I mean, these timelines are moving faster than anything we've ever seen before. Uh, And uh, multiple vaccines are already in human clinical trials. And you're hearing companies talk about having millions of doses potentially available uh, by the end of this year. Uh, Now, whether that would be broadly commercially available is probably unlikely. That is extremely fast. And I'd be interested in hearing Dr. Gottlieb's thoughts on this as well. But uh, even to have something next year, in that 12 to 18-month time frame, we kept hearing and we keep hearing Dr. Fauci talk about everything has to go right and really go right the first time. The good news is we have a lot of shots on goal, and we are hearing talk about that now. Um, you know, this morning, of course, Dr. Fauci and others are testifying uh, to the Senate Health Committee. Uh, and one thing he said in response to a question about whether schools will have vaccines and drugs to help them safely reopen in the fall, he said, that's a bridge too far. But what they want to know in the fall in terms of coming back is, will we be safe? And for that, he said, we need that extensive testing and surveillance system uh, up and running that Dr. Gottlieb's been talking about. And Tyler, if you don't mind my um, shifting chairs to the questioner, I would love to ask Dr. Gottlieb um, about something he said earlier, which is the idea that we might actually reach herd immunity before we even potentially have a vaccine, um, you tweeted a paper, it was a preprint, so it's not been peer-reviewed, that showed we might reach herd immunity at a much lower level than uh, was thought. You know, we've been hearing people say 60 to 70 percent of the population needs to be infected to get herd immunity. Are you now thinking the scientific community may be saying that could be lower, we could reach it sooner? Well, the classic teaching um, is that if you have an R naught, so if you have a um, reproduction rate of two, then to reach herd immunity, you need to infect 50% of the population. If the reproduction rate is three, then you need 66%. And sort of one over R naught, there's just a formula to it. But but in practicality, and with these two papers that came out recently um, modeled, in practicality, not everyone's equally susceptible to the infection. And so the infection will will first strike people who are most susceptible to it. And then the people who don't get the infection, some proportion of them, and maybe a large proportion, don't get it because they're not susceptible to it, either because of genetic reasons, or maybe they were exposed to a lot of other coronaviruses and somehow that gives them some cross immunity or they have some genetic feature that makes them less vulnerable to it, or because they're people who just don't go out a lot because of what they do. Maybe they stay in and they're just not susceptible, but you have to look at them as people who are less vulnerable to the infection. So the 
in practical uh, measures, you might reach herd immunity at a lower threshold, something like 40%. The paper suggested it might be half of what, what you would assume, but even something at, at like 40% would be a lot less. And if you look at a city like New York, where the seroprevalence studies that were done in April, April 19th, they were in the field doing those studies, they found about 20% of the population had been exposed and had neutralizing antibodies. That might've been a little high at that point, but assuming that was about right, perhaps by the end of May into June, you'll have maybe 30% of New York exposed by the time this epidemic runs its full course, at least this wave, that gets you pretty close to maybe 40% that might, might be required to achieve herd immunity. And now to take this one step further, if we have persistent infection through the summer at current levels, we reach this plateau of 30,000 cases a day, which is really probably about 300,000 cases a day because we're diagnosing probably one in 10, maybe less than that. But assuming we have this sort of slow burn of infection through the summer, by September, September 1st, you'll have infected 15% of the U.S. population. So you're starting to get to levels where you haven't quite reached herd immunity, but transmission could potentially be slowed in the cities, particularly the dense cities where you're having more infection. Now, that doesn't help you if you're out in parts of the country that haven't really been exposed to the infection. There's a lot of parts of the country, but at least in the dense population centers, you're going to have more exposure. Coming up on the keynote, what do antibody tests actually tell us and how many do we need to take? Stay with us for the answers. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Tyler Matheson, joined by CNBC's senior health and science reporter, Meg Terrell. Meg? Well, we spoke with former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb about COVID-19 testing, treatments, and more at CNBC's Healthy Returns Conference. Take a listen. So let me ask another question to Meg, and then I'll get you uh, your thought on this as well, uh, Dr. Gottlieb. What do we know and how promising do we think, Meg, uh, these post-COVID exposure plasma donations may be as a therapy? That's question one. And what do we know about the effectiveness and reliability of the so-called antibody tests? Because I'm reading that there are antibody tests that are not terribly effective, that people who had tested positive for the disease are not showing up as having any antibodies to the disease. There are so many questions about these antibody tests and our understanding of them has really just been evolving in the last few weeks. I remember maybe a month or two ago when we first went into this shelter in place, I was having a conversation with my husband and my in-laws. How much would we pay for an at-home antibody test to know that we're immune? And we were saying 
$500 a piece, you know, just like it was so such a valuable piece of information. We'd pay so much money to have it. And as we've started to understand what these antibody tests actually tell us, I think the amount we'd be willing to pay has gone down and even our willingness to go out and get one of these antibody tests. Um, and a lot of that understanding, of course, is coming from people like Dr. Gottlieb, whose you know, opinion I'd love to hear about this. But um, going back to your convalescent plasma question, um, so this is a, a very uh, old approach to trying to treat disease, taking the uh, plasma from people who have recovered from the disease and counting on the antibodies that their immune systems developed uh, to try to treat the disease for other people. On the antibody test front, though, uh, so many tests flooded the market because the FDA really opened the floodgates to them. Now they've had to say, hold on, some of these don't actually work that well. We've really got to reel that in. And there are about a dozen that are approved, and you can see their sensitivity and specificity data uh, on the FDA website, and they are pretty high. But even so, Dr. Gottlieb has told us he would get at least two antibody tests if he got a positive just to make sure it was right. Yeah. What about that, uh, Dr. Gottlieb? How effective are these antibody tests? And what about the idea that some people get the disease, test positive, but don't present antibodies? So how immune can we become? Well, this virus behaves like every other virus, and there's no reason to expect that it wouldn't. You're going to develop, it seems it's very immunogenic. You're going to develop antibodies to the virus, and those antibodies are going to be protective for a period of time. They're neutralizing antibodies. They're going to afford a level of protection for a period of time, perhaps about a year. It's going to be highly variable. Some people will develop less antibodies and will have less immunity than others. But we should just assume that most people are going to develop a level of immunity that's going to last a period of time of around a year, perhaps less than some people. Um, the antibody tests themselves, there's more reliable tests coming onto the market. The Quest test is reliable. The Abbott test, the Roche test. Mount Sinai published details of their test in Nature Medicine, I believe, today. That shows how reliable that test is, a very specific and sensitive test. So you're going to have better tests on the market. I still don't think these should be used for individual patient decision-making. Um, you shouldn't go out and get a test and find out you have antibodies and, and sort of that signals the all clear because there is a high false positive rate, meaning the test can tell you that you have antibodies when you really don't because some of these tests will cross-react with other antibodies. But if you want to rely on the test, if you want to go out and get it and rely on a positive result, a result that says you have antibodies, I would repeat it twice because the positive predictive value of two positive tests is very high. So if you have a test and, you, and it says you have antibodies and you get it done again and it says you have antibodies again, that's probably a result that you can rely on. Right. I'm going to go to a quick lightning round and ask for quick answers, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, as, as, as we're sort of tight on time. Would you let your child go to a summer day camp this summer? I'd be more skeptical of day camp than sleepaway camp, frankly. I think sleepaway camps have the potential to create a protective bubble that's easier um, than to do than for day camps. Would you let your child uh, or a family member go to a public swimming pool or even a swimming pool at a, at a, a swim club somewhere? You worried about that? I, yeah, I'm hopeful that there's going to be a seasonal effect here, and we're going to see cases start to decline in July and August, and we can all take a little bit of a breather in the summer. I'm very worried about the fall when we come back, but I'm hopeful that infection starts to break off later in the summer. Meg is a new mom. Should she be worried about this new um, manifestation of coronavirus that seems to mimic Kawasaki disease, which my son, my older son, once had? Yeah, well, we should certainly be worried about it. What we don't understand is the denominator. How many kids have had coronavirus? We know that some kids appear to be getting some kind of post-viral condition, um, which isn't uh, unheard of with other viruses. You see post-viral conditions with Coxsackie or flu, um, but millions of kids have Coxsackie and flu every year. So the question is, how many kids are getting coronavirus? And are we seeing a small number with these conditions 
or is it a large number relative to the total pool of kids who are getting infected in the first place? That was a conversation with former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb and my colleague, senior health and science reporter for CNBC, Meg Terrell. It took place at CNBC's virtual Healthy Returns Conference on May 12, 2020. You know, Meg, Dr. Gottlieb said that we are probably just in the second inning of this pandemic. What do you think? Well, I never doubt anything that Dr. Gottlieb says. Uh, I, I do agree that we're probably in the early days. And what that means really is we've got seven more innings ahead of us. And that's a really daunting thought. I mean, it feels like we've been sheltering in place and social distancing and flattening the curve and all these terms we've now started using on a regular basis for a really long time. But we do have you know, more to come ahead of us. Uh, and it's going to be uh, very interesting to watch play out. And we hope um, we'll start to, to lessen over the summer, but uh, we're going to have to see. We sure have still more questions than answers uh, about testing, about the, about the accuracy of some of these antibody tests, the accuracy of some of the quick tests. So mm-hmm. even something as sort of basic to developing strategies moving forward, we still have lots of questions about. We do. I mean, it's easy to forget uh, that we were only a few months into this. We only ever heard of the novel coronavirus at the end of December, and really for most of us in January. Uh, so even though you know we're halfway through 2020 almost already, and that's that's bizarre to even think about, um, that's really early days for a new disease and all these new technologies that are being applied against it. And so taking a step back and, and looking at that perspective, uh, yeah, there are going to be a lot more questions to be answered ahead of us. I don't want to draw you into the to the often politicized debate on when we will have an immunization for this uh, for this illness, whether it'll be by the end of the year, whether it won't be for twelve to eighteen months or whatever. But I but I do want to get your sense of whether we actually can expect to get a safe and effective immunization to this disease. There are some coronaviruses, the common cold being one of them where there is no such thing as an effective vaccine against it. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of risks uh, to the programs in development right now. Uh, Technologies that have never been brought to market before, like one from Moderna and messenger RNA. Uh, And as you point out, there are viruses that we have not tackled with vaccines, uh, including coronaviruses, uh, also HIV, uh, and other viruses that have caused outbreaks in recent years. So it would be... uh, a feat never accomplished before if we do get a vaccine as quickly as by the end of this year. You know, the White House is saying under its new Operation Warp Speed, it thinks we can do it. But the fastest time to a vaccine in history was four years. That record was set in the 1960s for the mumps vaccine. Uh, So these things often take years. And what we're asking the drug industry and academic researchers and people working on this everywhere to do is to shatter historic records and to ensure safety and efficacy at the same time. And and that's a very big ask. That's really well said. And, And I guess we can all just hope and pray that with the state of modern medicine and computing power and artificial intelligence, that that record that you just cited will be broken. Meg, great to be with you as always. You too. All right. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For more information about upcoming virtual CNBC events and how you can join us, it's easy, folks. Visit CNBCEvents.com. I'm Tyler Matheson. Take good care, stay well, and thanks for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. 
Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.